Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We appreciate it. We've got a great show today. Erica Eiffel on it from the Bad and Bitchy podcast. That's something I've never been, well, maybe the one has, I've been, maybe both have been used to describe me. I. It's hard to say. Not this week anyway. Staying on the good side of things. I'm in a good mood despite the hellscape we live in. Really, I am. Uh, Bruce Arthur on the show from the Toronto Star. Uh, we have uh, a conversation with Annie Kidder as well, who um, kind of playing hurt. You'll hear about that as we go into our conversation. Um, all coming up on the Toronto Today podcast for Friday, January the 7th. Please feel free to enjoy, subscribe, tell a friend. We are out there and we want as many people listening as possible. And uh, that makes us way, way way more accomplished in knowing what you want on the show and we want to provide it for you toronto today starts now any kid or bottom of the hours uh an education advocate i really want to talk to her i'm not gonna it's not gonna be over the head school stuff um you know covid stuff all morning long but we'll get you what you need to know and uh and as i said before um we're having these sort of battles with uh, ourselves, in a way. We're fighting uh, uh, not just amongst ourselves, because that's very true. We're fighting on two fronts right now, two conversations that I think we're having. The broken health care system that we've got and uh, staff shortages, those are massively important capacity concerns. But, but amplifying all that, all that, and so if that's true, if we agree on that, our health care system is messed up, and it's been messed up for a long, long time. If we agree on that, we got another problem here, and it's the fact that we are uh, amplifying that fact, and we're totally frightening people, making them think, well, if you end up in hospital, maybe nobody will be there to take care of you. Um, That's not great psychology. That's not great to um, make people, I know this sounds like it's such a negative word right now, but that's not a great way to encourage compliance. And we're also missing the fact that uh, many of the worst case scenarios presented, I documented it yesterday, that the uh, science table that suggested we needed a circuit breaker in the middle of December said ICU beds would be about you know 600, trending over 600. They're not. They're not. They were way off on that. Now, there are things they are right on, and let me go there. Um, because again... All I'm looking to do is be practical and pragmatic about universal risk. I am triple vaccinated. I'm a healthy guy. I don't feel I'm in any danger right now whatsoever. If you gave me free tickets to a Leafs game with 18,000 people there tomorrow night, I'd go. Now, then remember, let's. this is under the guise. I think it's important to clarify this. This is under the guise that there's no um, pressing need with our health care system. Well, of course there is, but what you're seeing in many states right now is a wide open perspective. Great debate about schools because schools are a debatable thing and they should be discussed and they should be debated and there should be safeguards in place that aren't there right now. Yes, yes, and yes. We'll get there with Annie Kidder at the bottom of the hour. But I think, and I'm quite sure of this now, and enough doctors are speaking up publicly about this, enough people that work in the healthcare industry, enough nurses are amplifying this message and they know that there's fear out there. They know that there are some scare tactics being used. I- I'm sorry. That's a universal truth right now. And-, and it depends how you accept those scare tactics. Maybe you get scared straight. Maybe this is like the intervention that uh, Dylan McKay had on 90210 where they said, Dylan, we love you, man. The sideburns, the cool car, uh, the-, the-, the bachelor pad. We- I mean, we can't figure this out. You're like 20 and you've got like a beautiful house in the Hollywood Hills, but that's awesome. 
It's great to have inheritance. Um, but you got to stop drinking. You're killing yourself here. And that can go one of two ways. Dylan can go to rehab or Dylan can drive his 1968 Porsche off, uh, off a cliff because, at, you know, with a blood alcohol level of, of 0.28. It can go one of two ways when you scare people. You know this, right? You absolutely know this. Maybe you're having troubles in your, uh, in your marriage. And you say, honey, this is what I need. This isn't working out. I need this, 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 and this, or I'm leaving. Well, your risk there is saying, is, is him or her saying, goodbye, go. It's a great risk when you can only go to that well so many times. And to me in Ontario, it's me saying this, we've gone there a lot with scare tactics. I'm sorry, we have, okay? And that's a collateral harm of using fear to drive behaviors. And I said it earlier, some people get scared way too much. They're paralyzed with fear. Like they're done. We've, we've got psychological conditions now. This will be, as I said, the mental health crisis of our next two generations at least. 50 years. And other people aren't scared at all. They shrug their shoulders. So, look, I, I won't do those things because I know our healthcare system is busted up uh, and, and you know put together with duct tape right now. And that's no comment on people who run hospitals or the fantastic people that work in them. It's pretty hard to get me wrong when I say don't get me wrong on that. But, yeah, you use fear to drive behavior, it's never going to work. It's never going to work. We've already gotten past, I think, I think that sort of blame and shame game that uh, that comes with the concept of telling people, well, you're in, you know, how did you get COVID? Oh, why, what were you doing? Where were you? Did you, were you taking unnecessary risks? And now that everybody's getting it, we're not doing that as much anymore. Interesting how that works. It's really fascinating how that works. And, um, and look, I, I'm, I'm well aware, well aware that there's so many stories out there about people getting COVID and people are like, I don't get it. I did everything right. I got it anyway. Your follow-up to that, like frankly, frankly, your follow-up to that, and I'm going to stop preaching and play you some audio now, but your follow-up to that is you, re- you should realize that, that mitigations are useless. Useless. And you've wasted a lot of your life in the last 22 months, haven't you? And you need to get back to really living. So people like me with, uh, you know, a four in front of their age want to get back and start doing things. But I'm conscious of the lack of healthcare capacity. I'm super conscious of that. Of course I am. Okay. But uh, nonetheless, um, the healthcare system was in trouble long before 2020. And uh, this is not your normal flu season. I gotcha. Absolutely. That's true. But many hospitals are always over capacity during flu season. The difference right now, staffing. Staff are there and when and, and they're not there right now. And staff, when they are there, are not burned out. And they're there to offer the best care they can possibly give. And we're not canceling life-saving surgeries, elective surgeries. There's life-saving, life-altering, peace-giving surgeries, and we're canceling those, okay? Now, there's a lot of people that are going to tell you otherwise. There's a lot of people that are going to argue that you shouldn't do this because of the healthcare system. Again, I'll do whatever it takes for the healthcare system, but I'm not going to tell my kids to do it anymore. I'm not going to tell my kids to do it. And if you're making the case that schools being closed preserve hospital beds, I'm sorry, that's not on them anymore. That's not on them. I'm not going to make them do that. That's just not how it's going to go. Uh, something I wanted to play you from uh, Andy Slavitt's podcast, In the Bubble. 
And uh, and I think it's a really interesting listen. Sometimes I can get to it over the course of a week. It's usually pretty long. But he had on um, a, a, a really interesting guest in David Agus. And David Agus is uh, a physician at USC. He wrote a book that I read a few years ago called The End of Illness, A Short Guide to a Long Life and the Lucky Years. I saw stats yesterday that I thought this clip goes hand-in-hand with, and the models are projecting the U.S. is uh, doing worse right now in terms of hospitalizations than the United Kingdom. Why would that be? Well, two reasons. One, um, climate and how spread out America is is a factor there, okay? London, excuse me, the United Kingdom is a lot more centralized, clearly. It's a tiny island with a ton of people on it, and uh, believe it or not, they actually have Um, with the NHS, a system that ends up being built up. And I know there's criticism of it, but they've been able to stem the tide pretty well. They're not calling for additional restrictions right now. They are actually calling in uh, members of the UK military to assist some hospitals and assist in some long-term care right now. And I saw that the um, provincial uh, opposition leaders called on Doug Ford to do that. And I think that is a good idea to do that. But there's 67 million people on a tiny island the U.S. is this massive, massive geographical entity, and they've got 365 million people spread out, 336 million, excuse me, spread out all over the place. But the models in the New York Times yesterday, I'll read you what it says. Our models project the United States is likely to document more COVID-19 cases in January than in any previous month of the pandemic. But this is the good news. A smaller fraction of those cases will require hospitalization. And hospitalization is starting to slow to a crawl, if not go down in the U.S., that's good. They're not as vaccinated as we are. So, you know, the idea of it, I can't see a worse scenario for us than for the United States. Again, we're more vaccinated. More things are closed up right now, whether we like them to be or not. Uh, but David Agus had this to say about how he views the next couple months. And I, I think I said this as well. We're going to rage hard, to quote Frankie goes to Hollywood, and then we're going we're gonna to die off in terms of this wave. He seems to agree. You know, what's happening with these vaccines is there are some breakthrough cases. They are remarkably mild. The vaccines are working. Your shoulder got bruised, and that's about it. We're not seeing serious illness in any of the vaccinated complete individuals. Um, That is vaccines in a booster, and they're tolerating this very well. I think we're in a remarkable spot from that perspective. And you've got, you know, 65% of the country that is not fully vaccinated. Um, Many of them no shots. Some of them, you know, the two shots and not the booster. And in those individuals, it's certainly more serious, and we're seeing hospitals filling up across the country. But it is preventable. That's the, that's the frustrating part of it. Omicron is going to take over our country, and it is. And over the next several weeks, we're going to see you know, numbers that really you know, dwarf even what we have now, and then it's going to come precipitously down. And together with the vaccines and immunity provided by Omicron, I think we're going to be in a much better space come the second month of the year. I think we're going to be in a great place by the end of March, early April. And I don't think, obviously, cases aren't going to climb until then. Cases are going to climb as they have uh, for the next probably week and a half or so. Dr. Eileen Davila, um, who I've had uh, taken issue with about uh, her harshness on certain restrictions. But I, but I applaud her for saying, you know, kids should be in school right now. I applaud that. Um, she thinks it's going to go towards the end. Like, we'll still keep peaking at the end of January. I don't think that we will. Um, I'm willing to better, you know, a six-pack on that. Not sure whether we could get together and share it. Uh, I don't think from a distance, maybe. But in 24 days of peaking, we're not doing 24 days more of peaking with cases or hospitalizations. There's no way. But how hard the fire is going to burn over the next two weeks is, uh, is greatly debatable.
Let's weigh in uh, with someone who uh, loves he loves his uh, ATP just like I do. Uh, Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star. What do you make of this uh, this Djokovic character? What the nerve of him? Shouldn't someone have told him before? Isn't that like you and I go tr- going to Rexall to get like that deodorant I mentioned and it's closed? He had to fly all the way to Australia. Well, first you say probably the greatest tennis player ever. He'll have more slams ever by the time it's done than anybody else. Good for him. But oh my gosh! So one part of this is. People, I think, uh, the majority of people are losing patience with anti-vaxxers. So, I mean, when he got on a plane in Serbia, he had some kind of exemption to, <clears throat> pardon me, to play yeah. in the Australian Open. And then that news broke in Australia. And people in Australia said, uh, sorry, pardon? And the, the amount of fury that was unleashed by that decision in a country that is majority vaccinated meant that by the time Novak landed, the idea of special treatment was no longer on the table. And then you got with his father, oh, God bless Novak Djokovic's father, a very similar kind of apocalyptic language and public spectacle and over-the-top kind of just all-over behavior that you see from a lot of anti-vaxxers at protests. Like, that's what it looked like to me. The whole free world together with Serbia should rise. This isn't a battle for Serbia or Novak. It's a battle for 7 billion people. No, it's not. It's a battle for Novak. No one else is trying to go there and be part of the Australian Open and is in court trying to make sure that they can get in unvaccinated in contravention of the rules. No, but the, but I think in a different country, I think Australians have been hammered down so much, and so some of it has about been about the subjugation and the rules and, and where we were complimenting them. And, and you heard people go, hey, why can't we be like Australia a year ago before vaccines? It's not that easy. They're an island. We've got you know 20,000 trucks that cross the U.S.-Canada border. Do we want to shut those down? Because then guess what? You, got, you think we have a supply chain problem now? I, I just think that if he landed at LaGuardia to play in the U.S. Open and they were like, I don't think— Think there'd be the quite the vitriol from the American people, or even in Canada, the Rogers Cup. I don't. Th- I think Australia is a very unique circumstance. I think there was a lot here that that made this scenario what it was, including Novak's, you know, brazenness. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting though because if you look at other countries, there probably isn't this level of upset because right now in Australia they have severe restrictions, which they have had before. But now have again. They're also in a severe wave. Like pretty much every world, every country that has Omicron, a severe wave happens really fast. Um, but what happens also with Omicron is at the beginning of the wave, there's so much uncertainty as you as each country grapples with what this actually means for their country that it becomes a really fraught situation. And I think we've seen that here in Canada. I think we've seen yeah. that in a few other countries where all of a sudden everyone's going, well, what, what do we do now? And then once you add special treatment for the unvaccinated, which even in the age of Omicron are the number one force per capita, which are extending the pandemic and making it worse, that's when you get a certain amount of anger from the especially vaccinated community. So is there a country that you look at that's doing well? Because uh, this is all I see every day. And, and again, we I know you and I have talked about cases before, and I think we're on the same page. They can lead you in a certain direction, but depending on who's vaccinated, depending especially on, on who's boosted, there is a massive uptake of ep- efficacy from two, bo- two uh, doses to three, clearly, in, let's say, G7 countries. But is there a country that's actually able to stop the spread with restrictive policies? I haven't seen one. The only thing you can do is slow them down. And even then, 
it's hard to look at other countries and say this is what we should do in Canada because this is one of the first times in the entire pandemic where Canada is pretty near the front of the wave. Like we might mm-hmm. be, we're relatively concurrent to the UK, uh, a little bit behind Denmark, we're behind South Africa, but we were one of the we're one of the first countries this time. With Omicron, the problem you get is there are no good solutions because it moves so fast. Like there, there was a public health person I follow this morning said, uh, update on whether you have Omicron. If you've left the house this week, you probably have Omicron. Like we have no idea how many people have. Uh, are infectious right now in the province, but I've had really smart people tell me between five and ten percent of the province is infectious. That's probably right. true. Like how many? I, I probably know Bruce. Twenty-four people. Now none have gone to hospital, but I, I'm not counting anybody over sixty. We just spoke to Annie Kidder, who thinks she has it. I, she's over sixty. Um, the, the education advocate. But I, I, so I'd say I've got twenty-three out of twenty-four, or twenty-four to twenty-five people, and none went to hospital. That's good. That's good. But you tend to hang around like-minded people, your own age, and probably your similar vaccination status. So that's the good part. And that's actually also the bad part for the unvaccinated. So what we're seeing is that this thing is going to find everybody sooner or later, unless you live really, really carefully or you get unbelievably lucky. And it just sends enough, even at reduced severity, it sends a lot of people to hospital because if you have half the severe, half the protection from from hospitalization and 10 times the transmission, well, that's bad math for you. Sure. And that's what's happening now is there are a ton of people in Ontario hospitals. There are more people in Ontario hospitals recorded for COVID than at any point in the pandemic, either today or tomorrow. That's going to go over in the official statistics. We And what's happening also is we're also seeing the ICU go up because, again, a small percentage of a really big number can be a really big number. And we're starting to see the number of ventilators go up, too. Like this, everything's kind of ticking up because there's just too much of it. So all you can do with restrictions is try to slow that down a bit, because otherwise you get all. Do you want all your cases in two weeks? Do you want all your cases in three weeks? Do you want all your cases in four weeks? Or do you want half the province infected over a two, three or four week period? Slow it down a little bit. And it means you're going to get less of what a number of doctors have described to me this mm. week as a mass casualty event. So I, I want Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star guest. I want to get to things that we um, we certainly w- would agree on moving forward. I think our point of, of disconnect sometimes is I think there's two conversations. And I mentioned this last night. We've got uh, absolutely a shattered and broken healthcare system. You can go. This is this person's fault. There's no doubt the, the, the people in charge right now didn't do what they needed to do over the last 20 months. Nobody argues that except the, the mm-hmm. hard as partisan so we've got a broken system and now we've got staff shortages that we didn't have in the spring we got capacity concerns but i also think that there's been there's been some scare tactics that get it because number one we amplify it that scared people even even maybe not even by design and people are crapping their pants about their own health and most of those people i don't think you and i should be worried about our own health i don't but I think we've got a lot of people that misunderstand that it's one word. The number one part is the concern. It's not necessarily number two. It's if you're boosted and you're healthy. I got teachers ad nauseum telling me I'm healthy. I'm, I, I got my three shots. I'm 52. I want to get back in the classroom. I couldn't. I couldn't. There's nothing that could phase me right now. So I think one and two, there's a bit of a disconnect there. Well, I mean, the problem of this wave and the problem of this entire pandemic in a way, but it's just that it's exacerbated here like everything else, is that there's individual risk and there's societal risk 
And one of the things that we've always kind of you have to kind of realize the pandemic is if you get the virus, spread the virus, eventually it's going to find someone, even if you're healthy, who's less healthy. And in this case, what like you don't think you're going to need a hospital. I don't think I'm going to need to go to the hospital. And I've been to the hospital in the last mm-hmm. three weeks. Um, we all use the same hospitals. And that's where this breaks down. There's not going to be room for you to go to the hospital for anything even moderately seriously. The, great, the greatest pandemic writer is Ed Yong of The Atlantic. He's, he's done the yeah, best he's job. Like, yeah. anybody. And he said it like three weeks ago. He was driving more carefully because he didn't want to have to go to a hospital where there will not be room to put patients. That's where what's happening right now at every hospital in the province, more or less is the bathtub is filling up in terms of patients just streaming in the doors. And it used to be it would happen in the GTA and then migrate out. Now you can go, you can look at small hospitals, like in really vulnerable situations, and they don't have a lot of room. So their patient transfers is not going to be a thing anymore. <clears throat> it's just going to be about which of the sick can you treat? That's honestly where we're headed. And so societally, there's a huge danger there. Huge danger there. Probably a bigger danger to our hospital system in this wave than at any point in the pandemic for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. And so your individual risk is lower than it was with Delta, unless you're unvaccinated and then we're still not 100% sure. But even then, it's more about the societal issue right now, which means we have to hold on for a little while. And I know people said that a lot. We have to hold on for a little while longer because anything we can do to slow this will help preserve a hospital system that we will all potentially need. It but are there are there uh, I got gotcha, you, but are there collateral harms of using kind of fear based tactics to drive behavior? So then then I, I mentioned earlier, then you've got the the three bears in their porch. How do you get it just right? You're going to scare some people way too much. There's some people, you know, people that are in their 70s and 80s or with comorbidities, you should be scared. I got it. I'm telling people that. I'm telling people alter your behavior. There's others that are just going to walk away. They're just and, – and, Bruce, I think we've all lost the room. I think the media collectively, I think public health, I think we've lost – I think there's no bandwidth left for most people after 22 months to, to use fear as a, as a demotivating tactic to do things. I don't think that's the case, actually, because I think we've seen since the restrictions in mid-December and especially the restrictions this week, there is declining mobility in the province. People are slowing down in terms of what they're doing. The thing with the lack of compliance, I totally agree that people are done, right? My wife is done. I'm tired of this. I totally get that. But when you shut a restaurant, unless you have a pretty high level of non-compliance, people can't go to the restaurant. Like, that's just that's just kind of how restrictions work. I don't know what the – I know that there are harms. At this point, there is nothing to do except to balance harms. There is competing harms all over the place. There always have been. That's the nature of a pandemic. And what we have chosen is our hospitals because that's where the most vulnerable people are. We tried to choose long-term care because that's where our most vulnerable people are. And if a society does not protect its most vulnerable, then what are we doing here? What kind of a society are you? And so if you don't protect the hospitals, again, you might be absolutely healthy in other ways and break your leg, and they might not be able to take care of you. That is a fundamental tenet of a civilized society it is it is hospitals so that's what that's number one and number two should be schools and the problem we have right now and and i know you get worked up over schools we can talk with us for an hour everyone gets worked up over schools i want my kids in school the decision they made was based on not having enough people to run the schools and that's kind of where we are with omicron right now in the province 
is too many people have it. But I would look and say one, you know, I, I got 75, 75, 77-year-old parents and say, don't worry about our asses. We're staying home. You, you put the kids into school. You took care of us in the first wave. You take care of us in uh, in May and June of 2020. Get get this together and have like I don't th- I cannot look my kid in the eye and say you're out of school. Uh, you're right. There's staffing issues. There's going to be, but that's why we needed to reframe isolation and cases and all that stuff. And that's up on the ministry and that's on the provincial government. That's not on individual teachers. But I do think we've got a scenario where there's there's most people are saying I can't look my kid in the eye and say you're out of school. Because because we might need a hospital bed. And that that is part of it. It's not nothing. It's some of it. The, the problem you get is it's not a one-to-one thing. Like, I don't think even the government has said, we're doing this to reduce spread. I do think that that was probably part of their decision-making because these guys are not that smart. Remember, they, it was in the Robert Benzie story in the Star yesterday. Yeah. They wanted to close the schools as a lever in December. I think that thinking kind of carried through to January when it was a different context. But even then, the problem we have is too many people get Omicron and too many people go to the hospital. And so we have staff shortages in, across every industry and they're getting worse. And that includes hospitals and it's going to include teachers. And it stinks. This stinks. But the only thing we could have done is take it more seriously in December. But we didn't. And that might have blunted it somewhat. It still would have overwhelmed us, just maybe less all at once. I, I'm making us. Sli- have I, to balance the harm. I gotcha. I make. I'm making us late, but aren't we going to get to the point where if I told you there's going to be two more omicrons, then aren't we just going to throw our hands up in the air and go, we're just not, we're going to stop testing healthy people. We're going to go Steve Eiserman, like he said, and go, we're going to stop testing people that feel good. If you're sick, stay home. If you're healthy, you work. Won't we get there? Oh, I- that's happening now. Like public health's been completely overwhelmed. The testing system's blown. The testing system can could do seventy five thousand when this started. We have more than seventy five thousand people who are positive in this province by a factor of I don't know what. Yeah. So like the things in public health that were designed to protect you or your kids in school, for example, those are gone. They don't fundamentally exist for the vast majority of society. The idea that you can look at the cases and know the burden of infection. Nope. Gone. Just assume it's everywhere. We are down to the point where the only way we can figure out how bad this is is how many people walk into hospitals, and we still don't know. Modelers who are really smart don't know. We are in the finding out phase because we blanked around, and this is Omicron. It just forces you to do things, and it reduces your number of options across almost every single spectrum. i got to leave it there. Let's chat again next week, Bruce. Have a great weekend. Always my pleasure, Brady. All right, kind of wanted to do some crowd surfing yesterday, and uh, that silly Twitter site is not a it, that is not a reliable gauge of how the public feels. That we've had a lot of trouble predicting elections, um, twenty sixteen U.S. election. I think Brexit a few months earlier was an incredibly tough thing to predict because we just looked at sort of social media and thought, well, that's how that's how people in the U.K. feel. But again, as I always point out, when you got seventy four percent of people not on it. Couldn't give a rip. They don't. They're not weighing in on their opinion. They're not trying to show what a great person they are. They're not trying to show what a terrible person they are. They just. They just do what they do. It's really hard to predict things. So, but cr- doing a little crowd surfing on whether teachers wanted to be in the classroom on Wednesday. Again, regardless of circumstance, they've been they've been laid bare. They've been denied things. They've been denied the ability to wear their own more protective PPE. Uh, I can go on and on. There's a lot that hasn't been there. 
But there's there's going to be obviously a major issue with education in the upcoming June election. And all I've said with educators and, and the great teachers that we've had on and support staff and whatnot that, that come on the show or that I interact with, most of them to me, to me, want to be there Wednesday, regardless of circumstance. Um, they, they're triple vaccinated. They feel healthy. They they prefer to wear their own mask. Yes, all that's true. Uh, but that said, I think that they wanted to be there. Things like class sizes, things like getting away from online learning, period. I think that's stuff that I don't think we're going to get to those things in the next two weeks because this is a race uh, to, to not lose too much of the school year with online learning. I'm very happy to welcome on uh, our next guest. I always enjoy our conversations uh, and actually saw her on uh, the agenda uh, the other night and uh, TVO's great show. Annie Kidder is the executive director for People for Education, and she joins Toronto today right now. Annie, happy new year. Thanks for making the time for our show. It's uh, always great to have you on. Happy New Year, Greg, and thank you for having me. Well, I'm not, you know, I don't know if you can put me in a better mood. This has been a long week for me, for you, for educators, for parents, for teachers, etc. What was your, give me, let's rewind the clocks, your initial reaction prior to even New Year's when it looked like schools would would open on Wednesday, uh, it was deemed, with not a lot of new safeguards in place, but then that that was a a quick 180 by the province on Monday. How how did that range of emotions and, and change grab you? I like I like the idea of a range of emotions, and I think you're right about the race, which is what we're in now. Um, it was it was both announcements were um, maybe not surprising and maybe inevitable. Everybody was told in the middle of December by all the scientists going, "We're really we've got a big problem here. We need to shut everything down." They called for a circuit breaker then. So in a way, it, you know, and it seemed really clear that every, if if schools were to open, everything else had to shut down. That didn't happen. And even then with the announcement of the two days, it was hard to understand. So what do you think this two, that you're going to accomplish in two days in terms of doing all those things, making schools safe, you know, getting way more people vaccinated, getting those N95 masks. Now we know so many terms for so many medical things we didn't know before. So I think that, you know, I wasn't surprised, but it is, you know, it's in, there have been the most upsetting, you know, stories being told by families about how you have to understand what this means to me. But also, we're getting um, results in from our survey that we sent to all the schools in the province from p- principals going, you have to understand what it's been like in schools for all of the staff and for, you know, principals to try and organize for there to be staff or people to be safe, uh, to understand where kids are, especially in terms of their mental health which they're really worried about. So it's, uh, you know, back to your race analogy. Yeah. We're really in a race now, and we've got two weeks, less than two weeks. So to us, it's like, okay, what exactly needs to be done? What are the concrete goals? We would really like to hear that from the province. And how are you going to attain them? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's uh, that's what I feel. That's what I feel most teachers are telling me. They're like, Greg, honestly, we want to be there and we're not, you know, we're not afraid for our own health. We're not. That's most people. I can't speak for everybody because we all have this mm-hmm. remarkable range of emotions. And by the way, everybody's got, you know, different ages and different comorbidities yeah. and different physical conditions, of course. So we got to make every we got to have a baseline level of everybody. It's the same way kids will get different marks with the same test, but we got to make sure there's a baseline. Here's what I hear, though, is that, as you note, principal principals and, and teachers are telling me 
you, you, what you got to understand is the staffing plan. If teachers are forced to isolate due to exposure and symptoms, yeah. we need to reframe that. And and we can't, like you said, we can't snap our fingers and do that. In for that reframe probably was necessary back a couple weeks into December to decide who has to isolate and why, how we um, how we test to stay potentially, which so many U.S. states mm-hmm. had success with. Um, yeah. And uh, and and we're just we just don't seem organized on that front, and that's that's got nothing to do with the boards and the individual teachers. I know that. No, and the thing is, is that I mean, we we as I said, we survey principals every year. Last year, they already told us there was a big problem with staffing. The staffing problem that has is there anyway because of all the kind of so-called pivots back and forth. Uh, trying to make sure that there are sufficient educators. So that that is already a problem. The other thing is, yes, most, you know, a lot of teachers may be boosted, but I don't know about you. I mean, I have adult children and witnessed one, you know, standing in a line in a mall yeah. um, that was backed up forever of people getting, bo- people with appointments even, uh, trying to get boosters. So that's one of, we made eight concrete, here's goals for you province, Here's a pathway to get to them and measure them, announce them. But one of them is prioritizing boosters for education staff, which finally they did yesterday, said they were going to do yesterday. Um, But that's really vital. The other one, on your radio station, I just heard an ad from the province, talked about how important it was to get vaccinated. But it didn't directly say you must vaccinate your children uh, because the other low sort of uh, vaccination rate is among uh, kids 5 to 11. And that's another thing that we have to promote and get done by making schools in this race, I'm going to use this forever, um, making schools into vaccination centers so that it's really, really easy for parents to get their kids vaccinated so that it does make it safer for everybody. We're less likely to be in positions where, where schools are just going to close again. I got you. Yeah, Annie Kidder is our guest, Executive Director of People for Education on uh, Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I think two things about what you said. I think we didn't do enough of that from September. Hey, I wish we'd done it, been doing it in May and June. I yeah. think we should have had mobile units out there in school parking lots at 3 o'clock to make vaccines accessible for educators, custodians, yeah. parents, kids, all that stuff. That said... I know that you hear this. There's parents that sort of bristle and and do put up their hand like a stop sign at the idea of a mandate. I think we'll have it eventually. I do. But without any real world data, it is it's a big ask, isn't it? We had lots of time as adults to get vaccinated and then get used to, well, you need it for this and you need it for that. I think it's a harder call for I, I would vaccinate a six year old of my own. I would. But I know some parents that will not. And I I agree with you. I think access, conversations, promotion of it, all that stuff's wonderful. But we're also, by the way, and you know this, we're seeing the, the virus hop from fully vaccinated people to fully vaccinated people at a considerably higher rate than we did six months ago. So vaccinating your kid is wonderful and it should prevent them prevent them from any sort of severity at all. And it's really, really rare to begin with, but that doesn't mean they can't spread the virus. And that's what parents are arguing right now. But this, yeah, they are. But I think there actually is quite a bit of, of data from around the world at this point. And the thing about vaccination mandates, the one we, that exists already in Ontario, the Immunization of School Pupils Act, which says you have to get vaccinated for chickenpox and everybody, everything else to attend school, is that there are exemptions. If you feel strongly you don't want to do this, you can all you have to, you know, watch a video. You have to get the exemption. So it's not like your kid will never be able to go to school. But I think what the mandate does is it sends a message 
um, that these vaccines are safe. We believe in them. And it is vitally important that your child get vaccinated because, yes, it can still spread. You are talking to somebody right now who I I think I have COVID now okay. um, and I've been incredibly safe, but and I'm boosted and everything. So it's not I don't feel that sick, but definitely sick. Um, but it's 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 how we send the message out to families and the public that that this is an, an important part of this, along with the masks, the HEPA filters, the um, having the rapid tests available for free for families and communities and staff, um, which we don't have right now. Um, it, it's that we need to, you know, I we would like to see a, a plan. And I think that everybody, families in particular, but everybody who works in the education system, Mm-hmm. would like to see a plan and they would like to not the people working in the system would like to not suddenly hear about it on the news along with everybody else but be involved in the decision making which is why we have continually for the last year and a half asked for uh, there to be convened an education advisory task force also with people from health and education you know, working together, people with experience and expertise and evidence to provide good advice to government. We've got that science table that yeah. they listen to, but we don't have an education table. And it's hard to understand why, especially at this point, um, when we, we there is a danger that schools will reopen and close again. And, and that's two million kids who are going to be deeply affected by that. Yeah, I hate it. I hate it. I I, I hate the lack of community. No, and and the lack of communication and, and yeah, the vitriol. Yeah. And and I know you know some people make the case it's two sided. It's it's. I think it's been incumbent upon uh, the provincial government for a long time to uh, to, to you know to turn the temperature down. Uh, but the, you know, two years ago at this time, we had rotating strikes. There were debates about online learning. Uh, the temperature mm-hmm. was very high, and then COVID came, and everybody had this. Um, approach to work together and in, in yeah. you know extensions of contracts were signed but a lot of that has frayed hasn't it because i think teachers just haven't felt well i i can't wear a safer mask you've you've loaded up my classroom and like i said i i think i hope there's one thing we absolutely agree on class class sizes are vital to reduce but i'm not sure we'll get there in the next three or four weeks i'm not sure we can um you know juggle that up i feel like that's an election issue that's for the next government whomever it is to sort mm-hmm. and and i think most teachers recognize that i think so too and i actually think like you know and you're right about the thing you said at the beginning about you know just taking the temperature by social media is not necessarily a very scientific way to understand but mm-hmm. i think for the most part teachers everybody working in schools are are working their asses off excuse yeah. my language yeah i want no i want that language i like it it's real i like it <laughs> They're actually, I don't think most of them are worried about how am I going to fight with the government. They're trying to make that kid who they feel like they've lost over the course of, I talked to a parent whose kid had six English teachers this year, and it's like, so they're trying as hard as they can to make this work. And principals told us last year, and people have learned a lot of things um, by necessity over the last year and a half. So there have been some really great advances in terms of using technology, even when there is in-person learning. So I'm not sure everybody's so much focused on, you know, how do I get on a side and fight um, rather than being focused on how can I possibly make this work? How can I keep myself safe, my kids safe, keep schools open, but also keep uh, kids learning and all and feeling a sense of some well-being? Because this is really hard on children. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as I said, on educators, too, I think people get yeah. into teaching because they're passionate about it. And uh, and the vast majority I speak to are not deterred. They want to finish this out. They want to see this all through to the end. You do. I do. Um, you, listen, you're playing a little hurt this morning. I hope you feel better. It, it means the <laughs> world that you did the interview anyway with us because um, it's an important message. And, and uh, we think you're a great guest. Thank you for doing this. We'll do this more often. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for, you know, making this conversation keep going. It's incredibly important. hundred percent. hundred percent. Thank you, Annie. Have a great weekend. Okay. Annie Kidder is the executive director of uh, People for Education. Okay. Y'all know yesterday was January 6th, a one year anniversary of uh, an insurrection attempt. People have labeled it domestic terrorism. I would agree with such a thing. And not everybody that was there expected to have happened what happened. There were a lot of people in Washington that traveled there and uh, and didn't storm the Capitol. And some people were just like, what's going on here? Okay, fine. But uh, there's been a lot uh, made of it. Here's what I th- I think. Yesterday, it's very clear um, that the Republican Party isn't recognizable from what it even was 10 years ago, let alone 20, 30 years ago. I've followed U.S. politics my whole life. Um, you know, I know what I don't know, but I know U.S. politics. And uh, and I, I can't recognize where this I, – I can't recognize what the Republican Party is. I can only recognize where it's going. Now, that said, I think everything Keith Olbermann lays out here – is accurate and he's harsh on the people that deserve it the democrats and the attorney general and uh and joe biden as well some people said yesterday good day for joe biden he blamed donald trump and his supporters and i'm like okay that's a baseline what are you actually doing about it i'm a big action person talk 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 but what are you actually doing in the field of play keith olbermann lays this out right here Traitors, crooks, sadists, racists, gun fetish psychos, seditionist congressmen, plotters of coup d'etat, still strung out on stupidity and impunity and ready to do it all over again. And they are not even the real problem. We are. One year gone. And if the midterms only go as badly as midterms usually go, only one year left. And where is the special prosecutor making life a living hell for Bannon and Miller, Gozer and Boebert, Jordan and McCarthy and Trump? Where is the attorney general giving us not a boilerplate speech, but indictments? Where is the Homeland Security chief telling us, yes, January 6th was terrorism. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are terrorist organizations. And no, you're not crazy. If you and I stormed the Capitol, we would be met by rubber bullets and tear gas. And where is the president who is preserving and protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States of America? Where is the president who knows that they are not going to change their minds because you govern well, that the Republicans will destroy democracy, and if they take the House, they will impeach you anyway? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many uh, games of footsie happening right now. Let's convince them. Let's talk to them. No, arrest them and put them in prison for long terms. Uh, dude with the Viking hat is getting out in like two months or something like that. It's honestly so much more needs to be done here. Keith Olbermann's app. I know he goes extreme. I know he likes to yell. He gets a little yelly, but he's absolutely right about all that stuff. Um, quickly, Whoopi Goldberg uh, got COVID, laid this out on the show. On now Remember, they, there was a there was a previous host of The View, and they cut her off and basically hung up on her on live television. We played the clip about six weeks ago because she's unvaccinated. She says she has a medical exemption. She's hanging around with Novak Djokovic and Kyrie Irving, whatever. But she says, I've got a medical exemption. And she said fully vaccinated people can still spread the virus. 
And they basically like, no, Joy Behar's like, no, 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 that's not true. Um, here's Whoopi Goldberg explaining why she got COVID, how she thinks COVID can be prevented, and then um, why she's absolutely incorrect and why this is terrible. I mean, you want to talk disinformation, here it is. The Omicron, you just don't know where it is. You don't know where it is, who's got it, who's passing it. So, you know, it's one of those things where you think I've done everything I was supposed to do. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't um it doesn't stop Omicron. And that's the problem with a variant because it gets stronger and does different stuff to you. So, you know, unless everybody gets vaccinated, this is what we're going to be facing for the next uh, you know, little while. But but you are vaccinated. You're triple vaccinated. You you just said you didn't go anywhere or see anybody and the people around you, I assume, would be triple vaccinated as well. And and you got COVID. What the vaccines are doing is preventing you from going to the hospital. She's a 66-year-old woman. Uh, she isn't exactly about to go out and run a 10K. Pardon my French. But come on. I mean, that's not true. And God, can we have a can a scientist work on the view at some point in time to get this right at the end of the day? Uh, Sheba Siddiqui, Dave Bradley, uh, Gord Rennie, join me now. Now, we saw this. Um, everybody, we have no vegans amongst the four of us. Am I right about this? No vegans. Oh, no yeah, vegans. no. No, no. Oh, <laughs> 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 no, no. Dave, Dave's eating a prime rib uh, right now on a bagel just to... <laughs> breakfast. Just to get excited. Oh, my God. Good sausage sandwich right now. That, that wakes you up in the morning. Um, but we saw this, and this is... um, It's a weird one, too, because there aren't actually pictures of animals, but they're diagrams of animals, and even those make me feel, like, not great. So they document... This is in Vox. The average American, and maybe we think we're different, but I don't know, eats 174 animals a year. How's that land with you guys? 174 animals lose their life because of you. You, you. And so combined, we're eating about 690 animals together, the four of us. Well, cool, I've, huh? I've kind of come to terms with it already. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm okay with that. Yeah. That passed through your conscience for about <laughs> three seconds. Thought about it. Sheba, uh, how's that? 23 chickens. So here's the list. 23 chickens, one-third of a pig. I don't like that diagram of the pig. It looks like I'm eating the upper half of it, too. I guess I'm, I don't want them feeding us all of the pig, if you know what I mean. One-tenth of a cow. Three-quarters of a turkey. That's probably the holidays. A small amount of duck. Twelve fish. I think I eat more than 12 fish. And 137 shellfish. When I see shrimp, Sheba, I'm like George Costanza. I'm, I'm on it. I can't <laughs> no, get I enough shrimp. I don't think I eat that much meat. There's no way I eat 174 animals per year. Does your husband? Um, no, he's actually come on board with me. So if, like, I think we're, I'd say half the week we eat vegetarian. Not the kids, but him and I. Really? Yeah, we do. We've started that. I'd say in the last two or three years, we've started eating more vegetarian, getting really creative with our vegetarian meals and lots of protein. The key to eating vegetarian is getting lots of protein mm. in on those days that you're not, you know, chowing down on the meat. Which you can't and get. I, that, totally. That's, that's a bad myth about being a vegan is you can't, or being vegetarian even a few, is that you can't find protein. There's plenty of protein sources. You don't have to dig into, a, a, you know, spare ribs or pork chops to get, to get your, your protein. You but don't. you can't add meat into your salad. It's true. Oh my yeah. gosh! Good chicken <laughs> Caesar salad. This, I, I think I ate twenty three chickens last year alone with just chicken Caesar salad. There you go, Gord. Yeah. Gord, how's that list land for you? Uh, it's a, it's pretty accurate. I think uh, the chickens and the pig and the cow. Uh, the the pig and the cow definitely more. Yeah, in small my, amount of life. duck in your uh, on your plate I've, from time to time. I've had duck once in my life. Oh. Right. See, maybe it's easier. Should they just give the average Canadian, just deliver us twenty three chickens, and then we can do with it? I know that's hard for people in apartment buildings. I'll give you that. And condos, but shouldn't they just give us twenty-three chickens and and a cow and a pig every year, and then we can do with it what we want? Cook them, 
So you're going to slaughter it in your backyard? That's yeah. what you're saying. Uh, but yeah. maybe I'll. But uh, but then I can have them as a pet for a while. Like I want them to have. <laughs> well, have terrible. An I love. You can't do that. You start naming them. And then you yeah, dress, you name it. You put a cute you sweater do. on them, and then I know the you kids. The kids walk to the mailbox and back and get their steps in. Like like anybody that needed to cross that ten thousand step barrier, you, you take the take the chickens out for a quick. Uh, you can't catch them. That's all we got. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We're back with a live show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto on Monday morning, the 10th of January. Do your best. Have a good weekend. Be kind to each other. See the positive. There are some out there. I know what a long week it's been. I do. It is, it's grinded me down mentally. Let's all recharge the batteries and have a great weekend. Do the best we can. We'll see you on Monday.